Well, do keep your Bibles open in front of you at Mark chapter 5 as we come to study it together now. As I say, we rounded off our series in the book of Haggai last week, leaving us with one week to fill. Uh, And in reflecting on what we should look at together, uh, I think I had the privilege of knowing that being my last Sunday, I could just choose one of my favourite passages to look at. And so that's exactly what I've done. Because what better way to end our time together in these meetings than to gaze once again at the Lord Jesus and just see how magnificent he is. And I think that's a passage, this is a passage that's really clear. That you'll see at the beginning of it, this is a a passage which starts with Jesus getting out of a boat, having crossed to the other side of a lake. That's because we're diving into Mark's gospel here at the end of a little mini section within the wider book. It's a section which runs from the end of chapter 4 through the whole of chapter 5. And it's a section of Mark's Gospel in which we see Jesus coming up against three hopeless situations. If you scan your eyes over the section, you'll know that these are familiar stories to us. Hopeless case number one at the end of chapter 4. A furious storm at sea which makes Jesus' disciples, seasoned fishermen, fear for their very lives. A hopeless case number two, Jesus on the other side of the lake encounters a man possessed by a legion of demons and living his life cut off from society and among the tombs. Well here we see Jesus getting out of the boat again because that last hopeless case, the man with the legion of demons, was found on the other side of the lake. In other words, in Gentile territory, Jesus' first journey away from Israel and into Gentile land. And while he was there encountering the man with the demons, he demonstrated that God's kingdom can grow even over there, even on the other side of the lake in Gentile land, because Jesus himself is the king with authority in God's kingdom. Therefore, God's kingdom will grow everywhere Jesus goes. But Even though while there he performed this really dramatic, life-changing exorcism, the people asked Jesus to leave. So here we have Jesus stepping out of the boat back in Israel. It's the return of the king to home turf, back where his reputation has already been growing. If you read Mark's Gospel from the start, we'll see that Jesus' reputation grows and grows. And that's why this great crowd forms his meeting party off the boats. But then we see also in this setup of verses 21 to 24 that once again, as he steps off the boat, Jesus is greeted with another hopeless case. Another hopeless case for him to come up against. And whereas in the first half of chapter 5, it was a demon-possessed man who fell at Jesus' feet. Here it's a member of the Jewish ruling elite who does the same thing, but for a totally different reason. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. This man's circumstances are very different. And yet here he is, every single bit as desperate and hopeless as the man who earlier in the chapter is possessed by a legion of demons. So, two chapters of the gospel, four completely hopeless situations but we find that when Jesus comes up against hopelessness Jesus wins 
In this whole section of his gospel, Mark's aim is to demonstrate Jesus' identity as God's king with real authority and to therefore draw the reader to respond to this king by having faith in and following him. And so to that end, we're going to look at this passage under two headings, which form the two main teaching points of this whole section. Because our aim is that as we look at these verses, we recognize the king and we respond to him. We recognize Jesus' kingly authority and therefore go out strengthened to have faith in him rather than being afraid. So two headings, recognize the king and respond to the king. First of all then, recognize the king. And the first thing we ought to recognize about the king is that he has authority over sickness. Now, we've already met hopeless case number one in that little preamble, Jairus and his daughter, and we'll revisit them slightly later. But it's on the way to Jairus' house that Jesus encounters hopeless case two in this scenario. As we read on from the second half of verse 24, a great crowd followed about Jesus and thronged about him, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So it's easy to see the suffering of this poor woman. She's been suffering from this menstrual hemorrhage for 12 years and it's obvious enough that that would mean a lot of pain and discomfort and going through all of that for 12 years without end is very bleak and that will be true in any time or place but then we remember the context of where this woman is living and we realize that for her it's even worse living in a cultural context where menstrual bleeding was considered unclean means that as well as the physical suffering and distress that she's experienced For the last 12 years, this woman's life has been one of being ostracized, one of stigma, cut off from community and friendship and fellowship. Earlier in Mark's gospel, we meet a leper who's been cut off from society, and this woman's existence would be not unlike his, unclean and unwanted. I think that we all probably know that it's it's pretty awful to be unwell with a chronic thing, Now just imagine going through this unending chronic illness which makes everyone you love, everyone you know, want to stay as far away from you as possible. It was a real struggle over the last couple of years having COVID and having to self-isolate but this is even more extreme than even that and it's the kind of situation this woman was in. No one wanting to go near her, no one wanting her around. And then as the text itself draws on She's been left penniless. She's completely broke, having spent everything she has trying to find a cure. So 12 years of moving from one doctor to the next, moving through the medical establishment and then chasing home remedies and then even going to any quack or charlatan promising a miracle cure, thinking, well, maybe this time it will work. Maybe if I cobble together my last few pennies, maybe this time I'll get the healing I need. But of course, of course it doesn't work. And actually, as we read, rather than getting better, in spite of all these interventions, she's only grown worse. Not unlike the demon-possessed man of the first half of this chapter, this woman has a problem that absolutely nobody can help her with. 
And so that context makes what we read next all the more dramatic. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. A few years ago, I had a very mild but persistent health problem. I went undiagnosed for about two and a half years. And finally then, my doctor got to the bottom of it. And all I had to do was take some tablets. And I remember the first day that those tablets worked, waking up and feeling like a completely different person. It was amazing, realising I'd been living in pain and discomfort for so long, and all of a sudden it was gone. And that was a fairly mild complaint that had been healed up. So we can only imagine how this woman must have been feeling at that moment. Years and years and years of chasing a cure that just couldn't be found, And yet the very second she reaches out and touches Jesus' clothes, in an instant she is cured completely. And in that instant she goes from being hopeless and helpless and cut off from the community to healed and restored the next. So it's an amazing thing for her. And yet, as we see a few times in this section of Mark, the first response that's recorded to this wonderful thing is not delight and joy, it's unexpected fear. Verse 30, we read, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Just see there the other self-control and perception of Jesus. The people are gathering in all around him, pressing in on every side. And so when he said, oh, someone touched me, the disciples said, oh yeah, of course they did. Look around you, of course people are touching you. But Jesus knows exactly what has happened. And so he wants to speak to the person who he knows he's just healed. Now at this point, once again, I have to imagine what might be going through this woman's head. She is someone who's become accustomed to a life of stigma and shame, of being almost literally avoided like the plague. And now, having tried to very discreetly and anonymously reach out to someone she knows to be a holy man and a healer and a teacher, now she finds that that very man is looking in the crowd for her. So just like Jairus earlier... This woman, too, ends up falling down before Jesus, but rather than desperate pleading, she falls down in trembling and fear. Of course she's afraid. Of course she's afraid. Maybe she's expecting to experience admonishment and anger from Jesus. How dare you touch me, unclean woman? Maybe that's what's going through her head. And if so, just imagine the relief that must flow through her when the first word she hears from Jesus' mouth is, daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Such a kind response, compassionate, full of dignity and generosity. It's this amazing reversal of her fortune. She's been outcast and delighted and here in Jesus she is accepted and valued. She's been ostracized and maligned, but Jesus treats her with dignity and sends her off at peace 
restored to fellowship with the community who'd been shunning her. And even more fundamentally, she's been living without hope. And she goes away with something even greater, a real and tangible end to her suffering. Once again, Jesus comes up against hopelessness and Jesus wins. So the first thing we recognize about the king, he has authority over sickness. But there's a potential sting in this tale. While all this has been happening, Jairus' daughter has been on her sickbed and then the devastating news comes through. We read on verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. I think we, we probably all know somebody who, when we're in a bit of a rush, they hold us up. They make us even later than we already are. Someone who will insist on popping in for a coffee or stopping to chat to a friend or nipping again to the bathroom before we leave and therefore delaying us even more. And those kinds of things are really irritating. But for Jairus, this delay in their journey, it's not just irritating, it's devastating. Because while he's been held up by the crowd and while, while Jesus has taken extra time to speak to this healed, anonymous woman, his daughter has died. The messengers who bring this sad news, I think they've got it right as they break the news to him, haven't they? Why trouble the teacher anymore? This man can't help you anymore, Jairus. Why not just let him get on with his day and let's go back to be with your family? And I wonder if they were even quietly thinking to themselves, why has Jairus wasted these last precious moments, moments where he should have been by his daughter's side, holding her hand, off on this fool's errand, looking for this faith healer? If any of that is going through their heads, and that would make what Jesus says next all the more shocking. You see, where he could have expressed his condolences, where he could have said, Jairus, your daughter will live on in our hearts, or she's passed on into an eternal rest, so take comfort in knowing that she's at peace. Instead, he says something which could be deeply insensitive, even cruel. Do not fear, only believe and actually when he comes face to face with the grieving household why are you making a commotion the child is not dead she is merely sleeping imagine if you or i said that in a house of mourning we'd be asked to leave and rightly so it's no wonder the people laugh they don't think jesus has just cracked a bit of a joke they know the girl is dead they're well into the formal mourning customs by now and so when they hear this man suggesting that she's just asleep their response is one of a laugh of scornful derision. Why on earth is he saying that? Haven't these poor people suffered enough? But of course, wonderfully, Jesus isn't like you or I. Because Jesus has authority. And that's the next thing we need to recognize about our king this evening. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over even death. When Jesus comes up against hopelessness, Jesus wins. 
when he comes up against even death itself, Jesus wins. So verse 40, he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. See how much that word immediately comes up. This is how much authority Jesus has. When he speaks, the wind and the waves listen. When he speaks, the demons tremble and obey. When he commands someone to get up, not even death can hold them back from responding to his call. All this is because, once again, Jesus really is the king with authority. I mentioned some of those other hopeless cases earlier in which Jesus shows his authority over nature, his authority over evil spirits and demons. But really, in this section as a whole, when we think about it, all of these miracles are really just saying the same thing. When the storm comes up at sea in Mark chapter 4, Jesus' disciples say, do you care that we are dying? The man with the legion of demons is living among the tombs as if he's dead. The bleeding woman is devoid of hope and cut off from the world around her. It's as if she's dead. And here, Jairus' daughter literally dies a physical death. All of these stories are demonstrating Jesus' kingly authority, supremely pointing towards his authority over the ultimate effect of our sin and rejection of God, namely death itself. Jesus is the king with authority over death. And so this evening, as we recognize our king in this passage, that's what we're being drawn to see really clearly. Yes, Jesus is a compassionate king, reaching out to the suffering and the helpless and treating them with kindness and dignity. Yes, he is the glorious king, bringing hope to situations where hope seems lost. But so much more than those things, Jesus is the conquering king, the king with authority, even over death. I think we talk so much about that in the Christian life, that it's helpful to just pause over it for a second and say, isn't that amazing? To follow Jesus, it's not to join a religious club. It's not to follow a set of rules or adopt a set of moral principles or have a new activity to put into our weekly diaries on a Sunday or a Wednesday. No, to follow Jesus is to know and to walk with the King who triumphs over even the most dreadful despair and hopelessness. To follow Jesus is to know the one who stares death straight in the face and unlike anyone else who has ever lived, makes death itself blink. That's fantastic news for all of us this evening. Mark chapter 5 is a reminder for us that a world without death, it's not a pipe dream, it's a person. And it's really wonderful to recognize that. But once again, we're being drawn to do more than just recognize it. Seeing that Jesus is the king with authority means we need to decide how we will respond 
to him. And that's our second point. We recognize the king. We're also being drawn to respond to the king in this passage. You might have noticed as we read the passage that there are two reactions to Jesus that we see, fear and faith. Actually, there are reactions we see all throughout this section of chapters 4 and 5, and here they are again. As we've seen, there is fear in both of the main characters we meet here. There's fear in the woman's trembling response to Jesus, fear of rebuke and reprisal, fear of being seen and having to give an account to a holy God. And of course, we see fear in Jairus too, fearful over his daughter, fearful of death itself. And in a sense, we know, don't we, that that fear in this passage is natural and right. Because what other response could be more appropriate in the face of death or in the face of a holy and just God than fear? In a congregation like ours, I'm sure that if we were to list all of the hard things of life, all of the things that were causing us anxiety and fear, we'd be here this evening for quite a while. Well, for all of us this evening who are feeling fearful, let me draw our gaze towards our King. The revolutionary message of the Christian faith, I think in some ways, can be summed up by the words of the Christmas angel. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. As Jesus says himself in this passage, do not fear. So we've just been thinking about death. Death has lost its sting if we know the one who conquers death. Encountering a holy and just God should make us fearful because we fall so far short of his majesty and his holiness in our sin. But Jesus conquers sin too, the ultimate end of which is death. So let me say this evening, let's not let fear drive us away. Instead, only believe. That's the charge of Jesus here. Do not fear, only believe. And as well as seeing fear in both Jairus and the woman, we see faith. Faith which is commended and commanded by Jesus himself. Because Jairus has faith enough to come and find Jesus. And so Jesus encourages him to not fear, but to believe, to keep active in the faith which drew him to meet him at the boat in the first place. Then in a similar way with the healed woman, if the crowd pressing in around Jesus from every side was really so tight that he was touching loads of people, well, why in our Bibles is this section titled Jesus Heals a Woman and Jairus' Daughter and not Jesus Heals Lots and Lots and Lots of People Who All Happen to Touch Him? Well, the answer is faith. Jesus makes it very clear to the woman. Your faith has made you well. It's not magic clothes that are to answer for this woman's healing. It's her faith. So in Jesus' interactions with both of these characters, the reader is being driven to respond rightly to Jesus. Don't fear, believe, have faith. That's the application for us this evening. Let me say, if you're not yet a Christian and you're joining in with us tonight, let me invite you to consider whether you could Put your faith in this Jesus, the one who conquers death. This may be quite new to you. Maybe it's even your first time considering a gospel like this and it might be like a bit too much too soon and that's fine. Please do keep coming back. 
come back to this church and, and find out more about this Jesus. Explore him with people here who would love to help you learn more about who he is. Hopefully, if nothing else this evening, we've seen that Jesus must be worth examining a bit more closely. But then maybe you yourself have been in church your whole life, have been exploring Jesus for as long as you can remember, and increasingly you find yourself believing that he really is the king he claims to be. In that case, let me just ask you, what is preventing you from this evening committing to following him in faith and belief with your whole life? If that is you, please do come and speak to me afterwards. I would love to speak to you about what that might look like. And let me urge you that if that is you, don't let this evening pass without coming to Jesus, acknowledging your belief in him, and asking his forgiveness and asking that he would help you to follow him. But for those of us who are already following Jesus, we can look at a passage like this and be truly strengthened in our faith. Faith doesn't mean refusing to accept the facts and pretending everything is fine. I was just reading an interview this afternoon between a vicar and a prominent atheist who was basically saying that same thing. Faith is just refusing to accept the facts. It's not that. Faith, as we see it presented here, is walking with and clinging to the Lord Jesus, even in the face of things which make us truly fearful. And not so long ago, I was reading a book by an American church leader about how to face suffering in the Christian life. And he recounts the story of how his worst nightmare came true when he lost his very young son very suddenly and unexpectedly. And he describes the moment that his wife called him with the news. He writes, Here was the point of departure between God and me. Here was that moment when my faith would crumble. In my imagination of doom, here was when I would curse God, resign from ministry and pursue a life of self-interest as a bitter, faithless man. But the Lord put a word in my mouth that surprised me. When my wife delivered the tragic news, I said to her at Lauren, Christ is risen from the dead. God is good. This doesn't change that fact. God gave me faith and hope while I stood squarely in the middle of my worst. I don't read a uh, section like that because I think faith is easy. It's not flippant. It doesn't instantly make everything okay. But I think it does help to see how faith is real. Our faith in Jesus means real hope in a Lord we can cling to even in the middle of our worst. And so whatever our worst might be this evening, however devoid of hope we might feel, even if we find ourselves or people very dear to us facing up to the reality of death, well, we know a king who conquers. You rejoice in him, delight in him, have faith in him. Even as we feel the real, real pain of life in a fallen and broken world, we grieve, but we do so as those who have hope in a king who will one day usher in his glorious kingdom forever. And we know, friends, that that is a place where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain because death will be no more and where every tear will be wiped away and that is the ultimate 
conquering victory that our glorious King Jesus has won for us. That's the glorious truth that sustains us and gives us real life-giving hope in our most profound moments of joy and in our times of deepest and darkest pain. So as we close this evening, let's absolutely recognize our King in these wonderful words of Scripture. Let's gaze at him and see his majesties, his glories and see that this really is the Lord Jesus whom we love and follow. Let's recognize our King and let's also respond rightly to him. Let's respond to the King by rejoicing in him and go out this evening strengthened to walk with him in a real faith, whatever we find ourselves walking into in the week ahead. Let's recognize our King be thankful. Let's respond to our King in renewed and strengthened faith. Now let's pray to God in Jesus' name for his help that we would do those things. Father God, we thank you that as we read this part of your word, we can truly recognize our King Jesus, that we can see that he really is the one with authority over hopelessness, because he's the one with authority over sin and death. And so we pray you would help us to be deeply thankful that he really is the one who has conquered sin, the one who has made a way for us to know you as our Father. Help us to know the joy then that comes through knowing Jesus as we come before you, adopted as your own. And we pray too that you would help us this evening to respond rightly to our King. We pray that you would help us to go out strengthened in faith, We pray that you would draw many to have that faith for the first time. And we pray you would send all of us out to know him and to follow him with faith and confidence and joy in the week ahead. All these things we pray through and in the name of our glorious King, the Lord Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.